The Heal Podcast has been created to explore my favorite ingredients for a long-term, sustainable, healthy human experience. We take an informed look into topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanding consciousness. Heal stands for healthy eating and living, so why not sit back, relax, be present, and enjoy the conversations about this unique gift we were all given called life. If you feel this podcast has resonated with you, please feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, as the gift of knowledge is something wondrous. Thank you for your open hearts and minds. Alrighty, let's get into some delicious healing. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. Dr. Perlmutter is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the Linus Pauling Award for his innovative approaches to neurological disorders, the National Nutritional Foods Association Clinician of the Year Award, the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the American College of Nutrition, and most recently, the 2019 Global Leadership Award from the Integrative Healthcare Symposium. His latest book is called Brainwash, and one of the first books I ever read was Grain Brain. I encourage everybody to follow David Perlmutter. To find out more about David, go to his website, drperlmutter.com. That's D-R-P-E-R-L-M-U-T-T-E-R. David, once again, thank you for joining us on the podcast. How are you, my friend? Well, always great to talk to you, Pete. I'm doing very, very well. Some just great things happening. And this is quite a big week for you. You've just launched a new book, Brainwash. That's true. And learned just last evening that it's an already a New York Times bestseller, first week out. So pretty exciting. We're hearing a lot of commentary about this book. And, you know, we think it's going to do a lot of great things for people. So we're very excited. Congratulations. And funnily enough, I've just landed back into Australia about an hour ago. <laughs> and when I was at the airport last night in LA, on the way back from Denver, your book was actually on the shelves there in the airport. And I was like, here we go. It's happening. So well done. <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting topic, what we're talking about this time around. You know, previously, my books, you know, everybody's books have talked about either eat this, don't eat that, how much exercise we should be getting, sleep's important, yeah, we know. But this book looks at things a little bit differently. It's, yeah, all those books are great, but they're totally useless unless you use the information, you act on the information. And so we created Brainwash around the idea that we need to work on our decision-making apparatus. We have to get to a place of making better decisions, and we realize that that's been taken from us. Our modern world has hacked into our brains and is locking us into parts of the brain that are much more impulsive in terms of decision-making as opposed to making decisions that have where we think of the long-term consequences for ourselves and for others. We call that the prefrontal cortex, and that is also the area of the brain that's involved in things like empathy and compassion. And yet, 
our modern diet, our lack of sleep, our digital experiences are locking us into the parts of the brain that take us away from the prefrontal cortex. So we don't get to make good decisions and we, we foster this sense of us versus them and, you know, impulsive decisions, hatred towards others. And it's, it's time we called it out and uh, righted the ship. Mm, I love that. I think the first time we actually met face to face is going on about seven or eight years ago. And I remember it very distinctly because we met in New York at Central Park and we had an hour, <laughs> just similar like we have today. <laughs> and you're in between meetings and I'd flown all the way to the States to create this this TV series called The Paleo Way, which subsequently became our film, The Magic Pill. And I believe one of the questions that I asked you, and I've asked pretty much every single person that's an expert in their field of health, whether it be nutritional health, emotional health, fitness health, holistic health, whatever it is, how do we get people to actually adopt this? How do we get people to change? It's not actually how do we do it. How does that person go about making these long-term habitual changes to their day-to-day lives? And this has always been the one thing that I've been fascinated about. As you said, you've written these books and I've written these books about here's a simple formula of how to eat. You know, these are some supplements that could help you along your journey. But all that information is useless unless you put it into long-term sustainable action, which becomes a habit, which becomes a lifestyle, which becomes where you don't even have to think about it anymore. It just becomes the norm, even though the norm seems so different to what the population or the Western population are doing these days. Well, you're right. And, you know, even as a physician experiencing frustration, you know, this book I co-wrote with our son, Austin Perlmutter, he is an internal medicine specialist, MD. And that was the genesis of the book is, you know, we were sitting in this very room where I'm speaking to you from right now. And we said, you know, what is the most frustrating thing we experience? And that is patients that are called non-compliant, meaning that we do our very best to learn as much as we possibly can. You know, we go to the meetings, we read the journals, and then we transmit that information to our patients. And, you know, 50 to 70% of the time, they don't follow through. We had this tendency to blame them. Why don't you follow through? I mean, I'm giving you all this great information and you're not following through, you're not leveraging it. And we realized that it's unfair to blame individuals for not being able to follow through as it is for people to blame themselves for not following through. You know, people have their New Year's resolutions and a week later they're back to where they were and didn't follow through and blame themselves. Why can't I do better? What Austin and I really realized was that our decision-making apparatus which is in the brain, has been damaged. And it's been actively damaged by so many factors that are working directly to damage that decision-making apparatus and lock us into making quick, impulsive decisions. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. We know that when we're online, that there are pop-up ads that, interestingly enough, happened to be something that Pete Evans was interested in just yesterday. (laughs) How does that happen? But you know, that takes you away from whatever it is you were online to do in the first place, number one. And number two, it hacks into your impulsivity to buy whatever that interesting thing may be. And further, we know that this area of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, exercises control over this more impulsive decision-making area, the amygdala. And what we've learned is that our ability to control the amygdala from having this top-down control from the prefrontal cortex is being disrupted. And we call this in the book, disconnection syndrome, Mm -hmm. whereby the prefrontal cortex, the adult in the room is taken offline and the amygdala rules the day, makes all those impulsive decisions that cause a person not to listen to what Pete Evans has written about or has said on this podcast, but rather just to reach for the, you know, the glazed donut and that's it, end of story, or to stay up late at night, not exercise, uh, not involve oneself with relationships or nature, you name it. So this disconnection syndrome is self-perpetuating because the more impulsive we are, the more impulsive decisions we have and make, the more we foster a process called inflammation. 
Hmm. And guess what? What we discovered was the scientific literature demonstrates that inflammation severs the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. The more inflammation going on, the more the inflammation takes over, the more impulsive are our decisions, and the more we, for example, choose the wrong foods, hence we're right back to inflammation again. So this is what we call a feed-forward cycle that is very difficult to break, but later in the book we describe how to break that cycle and regain your ability to make decisions. So is this a modern-day phenomenon? Well, it is. I mean, you know, we have these pathways in our brains that have served us very well. For example, our desire for sweet allowed us to survive. It allowed us to store fat, allowed us to gravitate towards foods high in fructose that are the, you know, ultimately lead to storage of fat, making something called insulin resistance, which we're all talking about these days as the centerpiece of metabolic syndrome. But in, in this very strange way, insulin resistance was a survival mechanism. You know, as insulin goes up, as you become insulin resistant, you make more fat and we survived. You know, we talk about survival of the fittest, but in many ways, our history is characterized by survival of the fattest, by those who were able to store more fat, were able to get through times of caloric scarcity, times of caloric, you know, loss of calories, inability Mm -hmm. to feed ourselves. So this is, in fact, a modern phenomenon, this mismatch that we see between our genes and our environment. Our genes evolved over a million years to respond to the environments in which we found ourselves. And by and large, these were environments that were stressful physically and in terms of availability of food. Now our environments do not challenge us physically. They do not challenge us in terms of, you know, providing food for ourselves. We have an abundance of foods and yet we have a physiology dictated by our genes that wants to store fat calories in the form of fat when we're exposed to fructose, which happened in our ancestry very, very rarely. You know, for a couple of weeks or maybe a month in the year, there'd be ripened fruit and sugar. And now it's available 24-7, 365. And still those pathways are activated. And that is what we call an environmental gene mismatch. Mm-hmm. So is it a new phenomenon? Yes. Is the hacking of our brains a new phenomenon by our digital experience? You bet it is. And how has that hacked into some primitive wiring? Well, you know, we are social beings. We have thrived in social environments where there would be division of labor, where we could look out for each other in stressful situations. And clearly, our ability to evolve in social groups was powerfully effective in allowing us to build communities. But these days, that sense of social requirement has been hacked by this thing called social media, which uh, is anything but social. I mean, it, it is clearly paving the way for more divisiveness and more isolation. We are amongst the most isolated, lonely generation of all time. And there are direct health consequences of that loneliness that is so pervasive. I got a question for you. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) we've known each other for a while now, and we came at this with the understanding that diet was one of the foundational principles to long-term sustainable health, especially in your work, which is about preserving our brain. And thank you for the introduction to Dr. Amen. I was lucky enough to get my brain scanned with him two weeks ago when I was in LA as well and sat down for an interview with him. And I remember seeing the two of you up on stage in Florida many years ago when you invited me to the anti-aging conference or seminar that you were presenting with Dr. Amen. Right on Miami Beach. Yeah, it was beautiful. Great to see both of you up on stage championing how can we prevent deterioration of our brain, which I think everybody needs to be aware of. Yeah, I mean, the brain is stuff. The brain is made of stuff. And it is no more mysterious than your liver, your kidney, any other part of the body. And so it is really all about demystifying this brain thing that no one has ever wanted to really approach. And the brain is just as sensitive to inflammation and the action of free radicals, damaging effects, as any other part of your body. And the care and feeding of your brain is something that we can all embrace. 
because the truth of the matter is that modern medicine, with all its glory, does not have any meaningful treatment whatsoever, Pete, as you and I have this conversation, for things like Alzheimer's disease. Nothing whatsoever. And as a matter of fact, in November of 2018, was a very powerful article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Journal that was a review of the studies done on the so-called Alzheimer's drugs that are used approaching a billion dollars worth here in America. And these are drugs, prescriptions written for patients with Alzheimer's. Their family is so excited. Mom or dad's on a, a treatment now for their problem. Well, what this study revealed, published by the American Medical Association, was that not only are the drugs ineffective that are used to so-called treat Alzheimer's, they actually speed the cognitive decline in the people taking these medications. Mm. Think about that. It's like taking a pill for diabetes that's going to raise your blood sugar or taking a pill to lower your blood pressure. Next thing you know, you've spiked up your blood pressure a couple points. So what an incredible revelation. And yet, despite the publication in one of arguably our most well-respected journals, it's still going on. People are still prescribing this medication because they say, well, we have to do something. And, you know, we are, as physicians, practice under the doctrine of primum non nocere, which means above all, do no harm. And this is a direct challenge to that notion of doing no harm, because it's, according to JAMA, it is doing plenty of harm. Hmm. So that said, you know, they say it's better to uh, light a candle as opposed to curse in the darkness. Let's talk about now lighting the candle. Well, hmm. what we do know that on the front end, that our lifestyle choices are powerfully, powerfully effective in keeping the brain healthy, as well as keeping your heart strong and your bones strong and your immune system where it needs to be. Yes, your day-to-day -day choices in terms of what you eat, exercise you get, quality of your sleep, the amount of stress that you experience are powerful influencers in terms of your brain's destiny. So that we need to begin emphasizing Alzheimer's prevention programs, programs designed to keep the brain healthy so that as we age, we can have a long health span, not just a lifespan. I mean, who mm -hmm. wants to live to be age 85 and not have a brain that's long for the ride? You know, having your body write checks as your mind can't cash. So this is the important messaging that we've taken globally. I gave this information at a recent lecture I gave to the World Bank International Monetary Fund in terms of the cost, a trillion dollars a year for Alzheimer's, a largely preventable disease. If your country, my country, the United States, is spending lots of money, we're spending $250 billion dollars for a situation that is largely preventable, in other words, doesn't have to happen, why don't we talk about that? Well, this is money made by pharmaceutical companies and healthcare providers and institutions, you name it. And it's really important, I think, to bring it out. You know, let's make these changes. I went through this with my old man, my dad. He died of Alzheimer's disease. You know, a brilliant, compassionate brain surgeon and you know, watch it happen. So uh, I get it. I know what people go through and it doesn't have to be that way. So time for a change. So seeing your book in the airport, two airports, actually, I saw it, Denver and also LA, what's going to encourage people to pick that book up compared to everything else on the shelf? What do you think will be the driving force for people? It's a great question. It's a really good question because, you know, just launching a book, you're wondering what are those traction points? What are people finding appealing. Why is it selling like it is? And now, why has it been acquired by 16 countries around the world? And I think what we've learned are a couple of things. First, the digital part, digital toxicity part seems to be really interesting to people because I think we all recognize that this has insinuated itself into our lives left, right, and center. Mm -hmm. But I also think the part about regaining your ability to make good choices. I mean, Year after year, these books are coming out with great information, you know, by and large telling us whether it's paleo, keto, vegan, whatever the diets are, these are generally good diets, but they're not working because people aren't following through. So I think 
what we try to do is build the bridge between information and action. That was our goal. And that's, I believe, from the feedback we're getting, that we succeeded at that in giving people the tools to first recognize what in the heck's going on here. That's number one. Number two, how can I offset? How can I get an off-ramp from this highway that's leading me to places where I don't want to go? So that's the tools that are provided in Brainwash that I think are very empowering for people. And I think for the most part, responsible for why it's become such a hit. Before we go into the tips and the solutions moving forward, I want to ask you about the name Brainwash. Who came up with that? And how did you know that that was the one? (laughs) In this very room, I have to say, we were on a conference call with our publisher and I was all about reconnection, reconnect your mind, reconnect your brain. Because as we talked about a moment ago, it's all about this disconnection that's happening from the decision maker and causing us to disconnect from making a choice to disconnect from each other, disconnect from the planet. I think it was our editor who came up with brainwash and it's a great spin, you know, on the idea of being brainwashed. Yeah, you are. But you know, the cover of the book has a brain with soap bubbles all over it. (laughs) So it's about washing clean your brain. This week, a report came out or a study came out and it was about sunscreen and I'll just read you this quote from this professor. It said, in laboratory tests, most of the sunscreen chemicals can act as hormone mimics, potentially affecting development and the immune system. But whether these effects can be demonstrated in a person and whether the use of sunscreens can produce higher concentrations than the body can safely deal with are as yet unanswered questions. And then it goes on to say that the FDA and the Cancer Council still say, keep putting on this chemical sunscreen, but further testing needs to be done. Now, I don't need you to comment on that unless you choose to, but how common is a statement like that being made where, and I wonder if you see it in your profession, like you're talking about the Alzheimer's drugs, where we can see that there's issues, there are side effects, but further testing needs to be done, but we'll just keep continue doing what we're doing. Now, for me, that seems blatantly, and I don't want to use the word criminal, but just unethical. How do you interpret that? I think it's a very reasonable question because we have, at least here in America, this assumption that there is this wonderful oversight by this governmental body, the Food and Drug Administration, that's keeping us safe. And the reality is that There are are many holes in that mentality. There is very little screening of topical products that are over the counter to determine their safety. I mean, we know that the ingredients that are used in sunscreens are what we call generally recognized as safe, but that doesn't mean that there is any real deep scrutiny in terms of what is absorbed, uh, the level at which things are absorbed, and what might the long-term consequences of those, uh, the absorption of these various components, what they might be. We've known for quite some time that there are ingredients in sunscreens, this has been documented for years, that can affect fertility, difficulties with birth outcomes in babies, and certainly some suspicion in laboratory animals that there may be a link to cancer. So this report that came out a couple of days ago, I I think is interesting in the face of the fact that two things. First, that the sunscreen industry in America is a $2 billion industry. That should tell you something, number one. And secondly, it's never been convincingly demonstrated, believe it or not, that there's an advantage to using these sunscreens in terms of cancer prevention. My goodness, think about what I just said. Saying, you know, the studies have never really demonstrated that using sunscreen is an effective way to reduce the risk of uh, Skin cancer, you know, that's an eyebrow razor. Do I wear sunscreen when I go out in the sun? You bet I do. But it's really something to think about that. So we've got to look at this stuff. And I think other ideas that we can implement as it relates, for example, to protecting ourselves from the sun, I think physical barriers are a heck of a lot safer and more meaningful, especially those that have high, uh, high what is called the UPF factor. And, you know, that's what I tend to do. I do use sunscreen on my lips and on my face, but I cover up big time. You know, I I abuse my skin for years. Here's what's interesting, though. So I shared that article 
on social media, talking about social media. And the most common question that came back is, what are we meant to do? Now, I didn't answer because I'm, well, I did answer once. I said, think critically, really think critically. Read every single ingredient that's on your sunscreen or on any label and then cross-reference that with potential side effects and then speak with your health professional and then make an informed choice. Well, I, I wish that were a reasonable recommendation, Pete, but with all due respect, I don't know that healthcare practitioners are going to have any information whatsoever about not only the active but the inactive ingredients, which are you know multiple in, in sunscreen. So I don't know that you know, there are all kinds of, for example, active ingredients that are supposed to screen for ultraviolet radiation. You know, there's avobenzone, there's oxybenzone, uh, octocrylene, homosalate. There are just a bunch of things, and even the zinc oxide is to some degree, you know, has the ability to, to block those UV rays. A lot of paraminobenzoic acid, PABO, was pretty common back in the day. And, you know, we, we all thought that was safe and turned out to be there was some risk for that as well. So I am far more inclined to recommend, you know, physical barriers. Mm. I fish on the flats. I've seen your fishing photos. <laughs> yeah, I've covered up with gloves covering the, my hands, hat, a, a thing called a buff puff that goes around my neck over my head. And the only thing exposed really when I'm out full on are just my fingertips because they stick out of the gloves. So, but I've had way too much sun. I don't mean to personalize this, but uh, I have to be super careful about risk of skin cancer. Where I'm going with this though, is the title of your book, Brainwash. Now we have people questioning how to live. How do we go outside in the daytime? To me, that just seems like we're considered the smartest species in the world, yet so many people just don't know what to do, how to live. What do I eat? What do I put on my skin? Should I put anything on my skin? How, should, how long should I go out in the sun for? And I guess going back to it, have we been brainwashed into not being able to critically think? And is that the purpose of what your direction is retraining people through your book in how to think critically and how to open up these new neural pathways. Uh, exactly. I mean, it's all about getting away from impulsive uh, decision-making to more thoughtful decision-making. It relates to what you've just brought up, reading the study or reading the, you know, what these researchers found. You know, was it meaningful? How does it apply? No pun intended. Uh, how does it apply to me? And uh, But I think that there's some good information there that at first should tell us that there's risk, A, and B, that we should challenge the idea that these things that are sold over the counter are necessarily safe. You know, that said, I, I would indicate it wasn't a huge study. There were only 48 uh, participants. It wasn't, you know, a, a, this massive study. And it didn't demonstrate that there was uh, any cancer produced, for example, it simply indicated that you know, they were measuring how much in the plasma of these active ingredients did they find. Mm. So, you know, I, I think take it with a, a grain of salt, but bring on board your prefrontal cortex in order to be a good decision maker and be able to not just say yes or no, because, you know, I'm, I'm just responding always from my amygdala. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, you, you brought up sort of tangentially another idea and that is that, you know, we were sort of made to be out in the sun. Well, you know, you and I weren't. You and I are, are meant for maybe 15 minutes a day at most. I think if you are black, have a lot more pigment in your skin, then you can tolerate more sun. There are, you know, migration patterns of humans. And your ancestry came from Northern Europe, where, as did mine, where you would not have gotten as much sun exposure. So you have less pigment, which means a better ability to make vitamin D in a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. People with darker skin have generally been more equatorial and darker pigment uh, in the skin is protective of sun exposure. Therefore, we have to think of these, as we mentioned earlier, this environmental genetic mismatch in terms of our heritage and in terms of what each of our genome looks like. So you know, it's part of what we call personalized medicine, making recommendations for people based upon what's best for them. Mm. You know, some people have genetic differences that have to do with how they handle dietary fat, sugar, 
etc. And we generally try to cultivate programs based upon our understanding of their nuances in terms of their genetics, and now even the nuances in terms of what we discover with reference to their microbiome, the bacteria within the gut, how those might be different between people, and what sort of specific dietary recommendations, for example, would be good for that person in terms of having a better likelihood of health. One more study came out, and I just reminded me when you said, talking about the Journal of American Medicine or the JAMA, came out last year about the IQ of children being born in relation to fluoride in the water. Now, that's a pretty prestigious magazine, or I mean, a journal, I should say, not magazine. And the study came out, and again, it was a pretty small study. But I've had Professor Paul Conant on talking about fluoride in water. And I just want to take from a neurologist's point of view, what do you think about this? The added fluoride that people put into water, can it cause issues for the brain? Is the jury out or is it still? Tell me what your thoughts are. My hope is that with any bit of science, the jury is always out, Mm -hmm. Uh, meaning that we always should question things and never give up because a study said this or that. There's been suspicion for maybe 50 years uh, of the effects of fluoride on the developing brain. We certainly see that in animals. And the uh, study that you're referring to that came out uh, August of 2019 came to the conclusion, it was actually a group of uh, Canadian children that looked at and looked at the amount of fluoride exposure that mothers had during pregnancy and the IQ scores of these kids when they were three or four years of age. And there was a strong correlation between lower IQ and fluoride exposure on uh, the part of mothers. I think this is a uh, was a well-constructed study. I think it gives us very good information. I think it's the conclusions are worrisome in the context of how many communities around the world have fluoride added to their water. And, you know, when you think about how that came about, it came about from the agricultural industry, oddly enough, when at the early stages of creating a fertilizer and one of the byproducts in the manufacturing of fertilizer for agriculture was this fluoride and they didn't know what to do with it. And it was known that fluoride had a role to play in dentition And one way or the other, they convinced local communities that they had to put fluoride in their drinking water. And there was, uh, you know, something to do with this byproduct of agriculture, of producing this fertilizer. So, you know, that's sketchy to start off with. But, you know, this study that, again, came out uh, in JAMA Pediatrics is worrisome. So I think that we shouldn't be fluoridating our water. I think the long-term consequences of fluorosis, which is what it's called, when it's excessive, are not known, and why take a chance? And matter of fact, we've been drinking pure drinking water as long as we've been walking this planet. And interestingly, you know, the bigger issue by far and away in terms of children's dentition is the level of sugar that they are consuming, which is Mm. advocated, you know, by what they see on television, put in their heads. 68% of the 1.2 million foods in America's grocery stores have added sweetener. And that's what's damaging children's dentition. It isn't a lack of fluoride. When you look at the dentition of our ancestors in the fossil record, we had gorgeous teeth. You look at the fossils of seven, eight, ten thousand years ago, their teeth were beautiful. And even beyond that, you know, and so uh, something has changed. Again, it's an environmental genetic mismatch that we're seeing as played out by the teeth. And the reason I know this, this literature is interesting because the calculus that forms around the tooth encapsulates the bacteria DNA, uh, the genetics of the bacteria in the mouth at the time it is laid down. So we're able to harvest from scraping the teeth, the calculus around the teeth in fossils that are thousands of year old, we're able to harvest the genetic material and reconstruct what the oral bacteria, the oral microbiome looked like. And what we find, interestingly, is that it was extremely diverse, which is obviously a plus, and it emulates the oral microbiomes of primitive cultures that have not had their diets westernized uh, that are even alive today. So the image uh, comes to my mind right now of these Paleolithic ancestors with just beautiful teeth, unlike anything you'd see today. 
And how were their brains? Any information about the brain size and the ten percent larger than ours today? Now let's explore that before we get into the solutions. Maybe before because a lot of people may never have heard this said or understood this, and it was one of the first things that I read in Nora Gagatis's book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, that said our brain have shrunk over the last ten thousand years, and that was the uh, oh fuck moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really? Surely that can't be true. So talk to me about that. Well, that's what the fossil record would indicate. And the skull pretty darn well gives you the shape of the brain. You know, there's no empty space. Your brain's not floating. There's no air in there. <laughs> so we're absolutely able to determine the brain size of our ancestors, which over the past million years progressively, progressively increased. In fact, tripled. But more recently, in the past 70,000 years or so, the size of the human brain has contracted. Now, some may argue that this contraction is simply because the brain is refining itself and is developing more and more connections and therefore is becoming more streamlined. But, you know, there's the other argument, and that is that it is shrinking, perhaps because of this, again, this evolutionary mismatch between you know, the environment that we are exposed to and our genetics. So it's an interesting finding. It's certainly replicated in many studies. Past 10,000 years, we've seen a pretty dramatic shrinkage of the human brain. Uh, it began, you know, well before that, but it's really been most pronounced the past 10,000 years. What else has ha happened? Well, we've developed something called agriculture, and agriculture has represented a huge shift, unlike anything humans have ever experienced, in the food that we eat, and therefore the nutrients that are available to build a body. And, you know, this is an interesting consideration that we moved, especially recently, moved to a situation where we're eating a lot more carbohydrates, a lot more refined carbohydrates, and less fat. And when you recognize that 70% of the brain's dry weight is fat, it should tell you something uh, especially in the context of the type of fat that we consume. You want to be able to build a brain with the best building blocks around. And the type of fat we're consuming these days is clearly not the type of building blocks we're going to be looking for in terms of building a brain. I will indicate that in the past century or so, the size of the brain has minimally increased. So, you know, kind of difficult to interpret <laughs> that, but uh, Nora in her book, was correct in, in calling that out. So on the plane last night, one of the legs I was on, Denver to LA, there was a young boy sitting next to me. And I can't judge, it's not in my place, but let's just say my perception was of, there was something going on there. And to pacify, mum had given uh, the child a couple of lollipops. And how, from your understanding and what literature there is and what studies out there. What is happening with these coming generations, with these younger generations, with instability of the brain or learning behavioral problems or slower, I don't even know the right words for it. Is it on the increase? Is it rising exponentially? No, I wouldn't say it's rising exponentially. I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but you know these issues with autism and ADHD mm -hmm. and other issues that may have a neurobiological component are absolutely on the rise. You know, autism here in America is now diagnosed in one in 50 children. If that's not a pandemic, I don't know what is. And, you know, having this conversation, I think now will be offensive to, to parents, some parents because I'm calling it out. But I'm concerned about what are the risk factors that are leading to autism. And we know that one modifiable risk factor is cesarean section. Having a birth by cesarean is associated with a dramatic increased risk for autism. That's what our medical literature is telling us. It's not like I'm just calling it out here to be dramatic. Why that is, is unclear, but we know that several important things happen when a child is born by C-section. Uh, perhaps most in the spotlight these days is the fact that that child didn't pass through the birth canal and therefore did not get anointed by the vaginal bacteria that forms the seeds of that child's future gut microbiome. We know that there are 
dramatic changes in the gut microbiome in children with autism in comparison to those who do not fall on that scale. And to the extent that research has now been conducted in which fecal transplantation from a non-affected individual child to a child with autism has been carried out, published from the University of Arizona in collaboration with Harvard researchers, demonstrating dramatic improvement in the gastrointestinal issues associated with autism, as well as some of the neurocognitive issues as well, by simply changing out, swapping out the gut bacteria via this process called fecal transplantation. So these things are on the rise, and it is not because there's been a sudden change in genetics. If this were a genetic issue, we wouldn't suddenly see such a dramatic change in the prevalence and incidence. That said, it points to an environmental issue, and in this case, multiple environmental issues that are involved, but there is clearly some genetic predisposition. So it's the environment, the changes in nutrition, exposure to a certain pesticides and herbicides uh, in the prenatal period, interacting with genetic predisposition. I have to say, interestingly, you know, some of the studies out of California that have demonstrated linear uh, correlation in terms of risk of your child having autism, depending on how far or close you lived uh, with reference to a major agriculture place where uh, pesticides and herbicides were used, pretty dramatic. The closer you live, the higher the risk. Hmm. I actually wrote about that and there was pushback. You know, why did I call it out? Well, I called it out because it is something people should be thinking about. A, not living near uh, agriculture if possible, and B, maybe there's uh, yet another reason to eat as organically as you can. Why? Because it's good for you, uh, especially if you're pregnant. And B, the more you buy organic, the more you support organic farmers who can gain a stronger foothold in the agricultural market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I make all of these statements based upon what our good science, as you have done today, what our good science is telling us that, you know, some of the components of sunscreen are getting into our bloodstream, that there's been a shrinkage of the human brain, that study I pointed out demonstrating proximity to agriculture is associated with increased risk of your offspring being diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. It's just what our science is telling us, and I'm simply calling attention to it because these are potential pivot points for us, we can make changes based on this information. So let's get into the solutions in Brainwash. Can you talk us through them? Sure. Well, once we call it out, we recognize that in the call out, there are solutions. So, you know, one of the biggest issues in our modern lives that threatens to increase this disconnection syndrome are, you know, disconnecting us from the ability to make good decisions and be empathetic, compassionate people and caring about our neighbors is inflammation, and that inflammation can be brought on by lack of restorative sleep. So that's a very, very powerful on-ramp to regaining control, and that is pay attention to this thing that we spend a third of our lives doing, <laughs> and that is sleep. No one pays attention to it, and yet you don't spend eight hours a day eating or exercising or meditating, all the other things that we know are good for you. A third of your life. We know that a third of Americans don't get enough restorative sleep. And it's two thirds in other countries like Japan, where adults think that to be productive, to get ahead, et cetera, you've got to stay up late and get up early and, and do all those things. And the reality is that, no, uh, that's not going to lead to that uh, in the short term and in the long term. Your decision making and creativity are threatened by lack of restorative sleep. So we talk about first finding out how well you're sleeping. There are wearable devices that you can get, uh, whether it's an aura ring or uh, other wearable device. Find out how good you're sleeping, how much deep sleep, REM sleep, et cetera, you're getting. What is your sleep latency? How long does it take you to fall asleep? What's your total length of time of sleep? Good thing to know, because then you're able to make changes and assess if they're helping or not. Mm. Are you exposed to blue light in the evening by looking at your computer or television or iPad or phone? Blue light inhibits melatonin and can compromise sleep quality. Are you having caffeine later in the afternoon? Bad idea. Do you get some good direct sun exposure briefly during the morning? Good idea. Shuts down melatonin, signals your chronobiology that it's daytime. 
What's your diet like? Are you eating just before you go to bed? Bad move. You want to be digesting well on your way. You know, maybe three hours before you go to sleep should be your, your last eating, according to researchers like uh, Sachin Panda and others. So that's a powerful on-ramp to better decision-making. Hmm. Exercise. We've talked about that at great length, not only because it lowers inflammation and lowers cortisol, but it enhances the reconnection part that we call neuroplasticity. So to gain better connection with that prefrontal cortex, exercise is a key player. A lower inflammatory diet. I say pick up a cookbook by this guy, Pete Evans. <laughs> These are recipes that are going to do what? They're going to lower inflammation. Yeah. We've talked about inflammation many times as it relates to heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, cancer, you name it, chronic degenerative conditions. But now inflammation through the lens of how it threatens to increase disconnection syndrome to keep us from being able to make good decisions. So these are three very powerful on-ramps. And you know what? You could start with just one. It might be, in your case, looking at your sleep mm. and just making those changes that we describe in the book to just get better sleep because that'll help your decision-making that will then foster an ability to then implement other aspects of our program that include reconnection with nature. That might be going out to, to a park and walking every single day uh, or getting nature exposure for 20 minutes a week or buying a potted plant and putting it in your living room. All of those things are effective. It may be that your next step would be to meditate for even 12 minutes a day. Meditation for the past 15 to 20 years has a robust body of science supporting it in terms of lighting up that prefrontal cortex, allowing you access to that gift that you have as a human being, the ability to think about the future. That's what the prefrontal cortex does. That's the type of thinking that needs to be brought online as it relates to your decision-making. So we outline in Brainwash a 10-day plan, and it's powerful. What we're hearing from people about their being able to regain control, even in a shorter period of time as 10 days, is really quite remarkable. And that creates the, the groove, so to speak, or the habits for us to turn that into a lifestyle, which then I think, as I said at the start, the lifestyle, you don't even have to think about it anymore. Exactly right. I mean, you know, the Dalai Lama said it very well. He said that the brain we build reflects the life we lead. Just exactly what you just said, meaning that, you know, you, you start doing it and that becomes a groove and it becomes, a, you know, what you tend to do, what feels comfortable for you. So, We've talked about food, we've talked about these habits, the sleeping, and I'm wondering, what are you working on next? Because I know you're the type of man that is always gathering the latest information and packaging it in a way to share with the audience. And I understand these books from being an author myself, they're usually a year or two or three in the making before they come out. So you would have been working on this for quite some time and no doubt you're already thinking about the next or partway through what you're planning next. I'll, I'll tell you, there are two things. Uh, <laughs> this book just came out. So uh, as in uh, last week, so therefore we should be hard at it thinking about <laughs> future plans, right? Uh, and there are two things. First, we are looking at creating a multi-day conference meeting where we bring together thought leaders in each of these areas, in sleep, in shinrin-yoku, which is forest bathing, the Japanese term for that, in mm -hmm. nutrition, exercise, all of these things brought to bear in minimizing or at least more mindful use of digital technology. There are thought leaders out there who are talking about this kind of stuff, but creating a Davos world-class symposium and you know, allowing that to be broadcast free of charge around the world to foster reconnection. You know, even the idea of reconnecting to the health of the planet. If we get Greta to appear, but maybe we do her virtually, who knows, by using technology. But that said, we recognize that this is, you know, something that could have huge implications in terms of, you know, really, really moving the needle, because I think it's pretty obvious that right now that needle needs to be adjusted a little bit in terms of what we see around us, in terms of where we're going, you know, around the world. This same amygdala that is fostering our impulsive decision-making 
is fostering an us versus them mentality. And that's becoming sort of the way of the world right now. And we need to stop that. Yeah, that's what Dr. Raymond was saying when I had a chat with him. You know, it's funny because we talked last week, Dr. Damon and I, about this exact thing in the, you know, in the context of this new book. So we, yeah, we had this, the same discussion uh, a week ago. What I love about you, David, is I feel from our time together over the years is you are a, an optimist. And is this a fight or is it just awareness of information or sharing of information? Where, where is it? Because I'm conflicted so often. It's like, do I fight? Do we share? What's the right path forward to not divide? You know, the word fight, it, it's not a word I want to necessarily embrace. Um, mm, same. But, you know, it can be looked upon in a positive way. I'm fighting the fight up for good things. So I guess, but I know that some of the information that I put out is a bit confrontational because it challenges us to look at things. It presents things that I think are challenging to us. Our lives are pretty darn easy. And, but you know, the confrontation part is how we are being threatened by so many influences around us. So, you know, that confronts, as we've mentioned, big agriculture, pharmaceuticals, the influences on our minds with respect to our digital exposures. So yes, it is, I think, by its nature, confrontational. But, you know, like I said, the second part of the book is, okay, you get this. What's the empowerment part? What's the positive spin? And, you know, I want to I end on lighting the candle and not cursing the darkness and give the tools as best we can as best we see it today, you know, may change with time. People have to accept that. And just our mission is to put it out there. And then hopefully one person is, is going to benefit from this. Mm. David, once again, brother, I love you and I love your work and uh, I love your family too. And uh, I love watching all of your adventures. And I look forward to the next time we chat, brother. Well, Pete, there's a line from a Joni Mitchell song. It's tears and fears and feeling proud to say I love you right out loud. And <laughs> you did so, and I love you too. And I always enjoy our time together. Uh, we haven't seen each other in real life for a couple of years, and I'm looking forward to when we have the opportunity to do that again. Beautiful. Well, I'm always open if you want a chef up on stage to do some cooking at your conference seminar that you're putting on. So. Well, oh, there you go. You're the one to do it. And so uh, we'll see where we go with this. All right, brother. Have a wonderful day and thank you for your time. Okay, my friend. All the best. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast. <laughs>